budget is a very complicated political device which reflects the priorities of the country, and we don't agree with each other. If you're opposed to compromise on something as complicated and potentially contentious as the budget, then it's not surprising that it's difficult to get things done. There are two things in the world you never want to let people see how you make them. Laws and sausages. No one likes to see the sausage made, including the guys who make it. Hey folks, welcome to The Sausage Makers. It's a podcast about policy, government, and the folks who run the country. Now we're day 17 into the middle of a shutdown and uh, figure it's a good time to talk about the federal budget process. If you don't understand the process, don't worry, you're not alone. How come people aren't outraged? The rest of the country can't take endless amounts of time to finish their work. You're forgetting the beauty of the federal budget process. What's that? No one understands it. Mm, Yeah. No one understands it. But after this episode, you will. Let's start with the basics. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are things uh, there are things about the federal budget process that are like a household budget process. That's Philip G. Joyce. Phil Joyce, I'm the uh, senior associate dean and a professor of public policy in the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. He's going to help us wrap our heads around the whole budget process. I spent five years working for the U.S. Congressional Budget Office, and so I've been sort of inside the bowels of the federal budget process. Now, in some ways, you can think about the federal budget in the same way you think about your own finances. Uh, when you sit down with your family or your roommates, maybe you make up a spreadsheet to help you stay on track. What's your first step? Well, you have to know how much money you're working with. Maybe you got a raise from last year, or maybe you didn't get the bonus you were expecting. Is this going to be a good year? Is it going to be a bad year? Do we need to tighten our belts a little bit? Do we have a little bit of extra money to spend? Am I going to be making more money in terms of salary? Am I going to be making less? That kind of thing. Now, for a federal budget, that conversation happens in the form of what's called a budget resolution. By April 15th every year, Congress is supposed to have taken stock of the money that's coming in and work out a general sense of what the government's expenses look like. Now, like Joyce said in the cold open... The budget is a very complicated political device which reflects the priorities of the country. When he says priorities, Joyce is talking about decisions about where we put our money. If we're lagging behind other countries in education, for example, we might want to spend more on education programs. Or if the trucking industry is being slowed down by our nation's crumbling highways, we might spend some extra money on infrastructure. But before Congress can set about defining those priorities and doling out the cold hard cash, it helps if everybody's on the same page about the financial realities that our government is coping with. That's what the budget resolution is for. It's an outline for the budget, but it doesn't actually move any money around. Now, in a household budget, part of that taking stock discussion would include recurring expenses like your mortgage, your rent, your car payments, things like that. For the federal government, they have to factor in the cost of what's called entitlement programs, also known as mandatory spending. In the case of mandatory spending, what the Congress has done is it's created laws. Those laws will say, if you are someone who meets the following characteristics, by virtue of meeting those characteristics, the federal government will send you money. That's why they call it an entitlement, because if you meet a certain criteria, the government says you're entitled to benefits. So, Social Security is a classic example of that. 
know if you're at the age at which you receive Social Security, you've actually accrued enough months of you know credits in terms of work that you've done in order to be eligible to receive Social Security. Once you've signed up for Social Security, a check automatically goes to you. In many cases these days is directly deposited into your account. And the only way to change that is for the Congress to actually go back and change the law. Now, the only way that entitlement spending can be curbed is either by redefining the criteria, so for Social Security, that would be raising the retirement age, or by cutting back on the benefits they receive. And it's incredibly difficult for politicians to make changes to mandatory spending, in part because of how many voters rely on those entitlement programs, voters who wouldn't be happy if Congress decided just to cut a smaller check. But unless they do that, that program and other mandatory spending programs are on automatic pilot. They are not reviewed and budgeted for on an annual basis. Entitlements are a huge chunk of the government's spending. It's about two-thirds. And the amount of entitlement spending changes based on how many people are eligible to receive those entitlement benefits. So when Congress takes stock in a budget resolution, it has to take those changing mandatory spending figures into account. Now, Joyce will talk more about this later, but in 10 of the past 20 years, Congress didn't pass a budget resolution. Not having a budget resolution doesn't actually mean you don't have a budget, curiously enough. You can still get a budget without a budget resolution, but without laying that groundwork, Joyce says, the process doesn't have a chance to get off the ground. The real action happens in what are called appropriations, where Congress authorizes agencies to spend money. In fact, before we get further, let's talk about the mechanics of how the federal government actually spends its money. So let's say that the Defense Department got an appropriation for $700 billion. Nobody is writing a check to the Secretary of Defense which he is then depositing in a local bank and writing checks on. When the Secretary of Defense needs to pay for something, he tells the Treasury Department what he's buying and how much it costs. And then the question is, A, do you have the money, and B, are you allowed to spend it on what you're requesting to spend it for? So then, at that point, the Treasury, if it, if it says yes, the Treasury then sends a check to whoever it is that would be receiving the money from the government, and that might be a salary check to, you know, to a soldier, or that might be a check to a contractor who is, uh, you know, building a new plane or wherever it might be. Before the Treasury cuts a check, it has to make sure that Congress appropriated the money for that purpose. When we talk about the budget, what we're really talking about are these appropriations. But how does Congress know how much to appropriate? Well, there's something called authorizations for appropriations. Let's take Head Start, for example. It's an early childhood education program. It provides funding for kids up to five years old to go to preschool, pre-preschool, other, other things like that. What happens with Head Start and other programs like it, Congress passes a bill that creates the program, it says how it's going to be run, what its purpose is, but until the Congress gives it money, it can't really do the work it was designed to do. What often happens, which makes it more confusing, in these authorization bills is that there are these things called authorizations of appropriation. So to continue with my Head Start example, you might say, well, we've got a Head Start program, and in the authorization bill, we're going to say they're hereby are authorized to be appropriated, let's pick a number, a billion dollars for Head Start. 
And if you look at that and you don't know any better, you would think that Head Start just got a billion dollars. But the truth is that Head Start didn't get anything at all until and unless there is a subsequent appropriations bill. And that subsequent appropriations bill could give Head Start a billion dollars, but it could also give it $200 million or $400 million or, curiously enough, a billion and a half. It doesn't really constrain the Congress in terms of how much money it has to provide to put that number in the authorization bill. So authorizations of appropriations, just like budget resolutions, don't do all that much. They're just suggestions for how much money Congress should spend on a given program. And if Congress can just ignore that suggestion, what's the point? The authorizing committees, who are the ones who have jurisdiction over the authorization of appropriations, by and large, they are supportive of these programs. And so if I'm putting that number for Head Start in the authorization bill, what I'm doing is I'm sort of creating a demand for those resources. And I feel like if I put that number in there, which is usually the number that the authorizing committee feels is necessary in order to run the program at the level that they think it should be run, then you can almost sort of think of it as a bid for future resources. And what they're doing is putting a marker out there and trying to put pressure on the Appropriations Committee to provide that level of money. Most bills that create a new government program contain this authorization for appropriations. It's really just a way for politicians who support a program to try to get as much money for that program as they think it needs in order to succeed. And remember that Congress does not have to listen at all to that suggestion. So just to recap, government programs come with these authorizations for appropriations, suggestions for how much money each program should get. That's totally independent from the budget process. They can ask for as much money as they want because they don't have to consider the bigger budgetary implications. Once the budget process starts, Congress gets to work on a big-picture look of the government's income and expenses, the budget resolution, which gives an outline for how much money each federal agency, you know, education, health and human services, the Justice Department, the Department of Defense, how much each of those should get. Then the appropriations committees take over. For each of those departments, for each of the agencies, there's a group of senators and representatives in the appropriations subcommittees who discuss and debate the specifics of funding. How much does each department get, and what is it going to spend it on? So now that we've got a baseline understanding of how the process works, what the process is supposed to be, uh, we're going to go back to Philip Joyce in just a second to talk more about the abstractions of the budget process and why it seems to uh, go wrong so often. So we heard from Philip Joyce earlier just about the sort of particulars of the federal budget process, how it works, just so that we could get up to speed and uh, understand what we're talking about when we talk about it. Now uh, now that we're at least conversant, if not proficient, in the budget process, Joyce is going to walk us through why the budget process always seems to get rankled and how that relates to the broader cultural factors in the political arena. Now, given that shutdowns have become a mainstay of modern politics, I asked Joyce whether he thought the budget process could be changed to make it more successful than it often is. Here's what he said. I think the challenge when you're talking about budget process reform is that some people look at the budget outcomes, you know, the fact that we don't happen to pass budgets on time and it's a sort of messy process and we're always kind of flirting with these government shutdowns and missing all these deadlines. And they say, well, if we just had a better process, then everything would be fine. I personally am in the camp that would say there's nothing in particular that's wrong with the process. The process, if used, could actually work quite well. 
The problem is that we choose not to use it. And when he says we choose not to use it, he's talking about the fact that Congress rarely finishes the first step of the process on time. Remember the budget resolution? It sets the general tone of the budget. In 10 of the past 20 years, Congress failed to pass one. And on the years when they do, they usually pass it well after an April 15th deadline that's set by the law that outlines the whole you know, process. Part of the problem, Joyce said, is this. When Congress does its budget work, there's not even really a sense of what they're working towards. The different factions have different answers to the question, what's our goal? For a long time, there was a consensus that we ought to have a balanced budget. It's not a perfect goal, but at least it's something people can get their arms around. Right now, one of our problems is we don't actually know where we're trying to get to. If we could say we have a target that we would like to reduce the debt as a percentage of the economy to 60%, it's right now at almost 80%, to 60% within 10 years, then we could sort of set out trying to devise a path in order to get there. But we don't really even have a consensus on what the goal is. Now, let's talk about that metric for a second. Uh, debt as a percentage of the economy or of GDP, gross domestic product. GDP is basically a measure of how well our economy is doing. Now, without looking at the debt in relation to the GDP, there's really no context. A higher GDP means greater tax revenues, which makes it easier for the government to pay down the debt. To do that, it would probably still have to cut spending, but not as much as a smaller country with the same amount of debt would have to cut. Think about it like this. Imagine that a successful CEO and a grocery store clerk both rack up $100,000 worth of debt. The CEO might have to make a few lifestyle sacrifices, but he'll pay it off. The grocery store clerk is royally screwed. Traditionally, Congress avoids going into debt except in times of crisis. We went into debt to fund the war in Iraq, and we went into debt trying to mitigate the financial crisis in 2008. But in more recent years, Joyce says, it's become normal for Congress to spend at crisis levels even when there's no crisis. I asked Joyce what he thought a reasonable budget goal would be. What I would have said 10 years ago and what I would say now are not the same thing. You know, the debt went up a lot. Uh, because of the Great Recession, the debt was at about 40% of GDP, and now it's at 80% of GDP. And 40% it had been like the 40-year historical average. And so I think that would be a reasonable place to get back to, but we're not going to get back there anytime soon. I think if, you know, if we could get to 60% of GDP within 10 years, we'd be doing a lot. Now, forget the fact that Congress isn't really in a conciliatory mood right now, and it's not likely that they would agree on a budget goal. Even if they did agree on one, there would be political consequences for those who supported it because of the economic consequences that it would inflict upon their constituents. Invariably, if we're going to do that, it's going to involve inflicting pain on people. We have to raise their taxes and probably, not or, cut the entitlement spending that we were talking about earlier. And neither of those things are easy to do, either economically or politically. Depending on which major party you belong to, raising taxes or cutting entitlements are dirty words. And that's in part because of each party's traditional constituencies. Joyce said that people in the upper tax bracket who, by and large, are a Republican constituency, would be most impacted by tax increases. Entitlement recipients, including Medicare beneficiaries, those enrolled in the 13 other welfare programs, tend to vote Democrat and would be most impacted by cutbacks to entitlement spending. By and large, I think Democrats feel about mandatory spending the way Republicans feel about taxes, in the sense that you know a lot of Republicans think that taxes should never be raised, and a lot of Democrats think that mandatory spending should never be cut. 
therein we have the problem with trying to sort of deal with the large and growing debt that we have because you can't really deal with the large and growing debt that we have without doing both of those things. To get one party that's opposed to one and the other party that's opposed to the other, you can't make much progress. These ideological differences and differences in their voter demographics aren't that new, at least in the modern political arena. But Joyce says there are a couple of obstacles to a smooth budget process, not to mention a smoothly running democracy, that in recent years have seemed to be getting worse and worse. There's sort of two phenomena which I think are related. The first is that there used to be these people called moderates. And because of redistricting and other things, there just aren't as many people in the middle as there used to be. And the people in the middle were quite important, not because most people were in the middle, but because they could sort of move back and forth. And they were the ones that helped to get things done and kind of bridge the gap. The second is that that compromise has become a dirty word. And the budget is a very complicated political device, which reflects the priorities of the country. And we don't agree with each other on lots of things. And so that means that compromise is necessary in order to get things done. If you're opposed to compromise on something as complicated and potentially contentious as the budget, then it's not surprising that it's difficult to get things done. It's a diagnosis we've heard time and time again. Our politics have become so polarized that our government is paralyzed. Sometimes that manifests in tangible ways, like a shutdown, but it's also led to a broader cultural shift, away from objective policy analysis and toward whatever analysis bolsters their own side's narrative. Joyce used to be a policy analyst for the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO. Basically, it's their job to take a bill on the floor of the House or Senate and write up a report about the impact of that bill on the budget, on other economic considerations. The reports contain a table of itemized 10-year projections, avalanches of acronyms, statutory citations, and such lofty prose as, in its January 2009 baseline, which preceded the law's enactment, CBO overestimated the routine inflation adjustment applied to SNAP benefits, which was based on the agency's projection of the Consumer Price Index for food at home that, in turn, caused CBO to underestimate the error-related changes in average benefits per person. I had a lot of trouble picking a sufficiently boring-sounding clip from the CBO reports. Available online, check the show notes, because I am an insatiable geek with this stuff. Nothing sounds boring to me. This is the government at work. Federal agency websites are littered with reports like that one. Dedicated policy analysts are working across the government, looking carefully at problems or proposed solutions through the lens of policy outcomes, not politics. Social scientists gathering data, presenting it objectively, accurately, transparently, so that politicians and the public can better understand the issues on the floor of Congress. Back when he was one of them, Philip Joyce heard one of his CBO colleagues explain their role like this. If you ask CBO how much something costs, they'll tell you how much it costs. If you ask them if it's a good idea, they'll tell you how much it costs. Agencies like the CBO, filled with people like Philip Joyce, are pumping out reports every day. The problem, he said, is that people aren't reading them, or at least they're not reading them as objectively as they were written. I have seen over time a little bit less appetite for objective analysis, and I don't mean here only in the Congress. I mean sort of in society writ large. 
that people think that they already know the answer and they're looking for data or ammunition that will support the conclusion that they've already reached. And I think in that kind of a setting, objective analysis is less valuable because people are not listening. You know, they don't have their ears open. They don't want to ask the question, what will this really do? They just want somebody to provide them with data to reinforce a conclusion that they've already reached. We all think that we've got the right answer, that our side is just trying to build a country that lives up to its promise, and the other guys are just too dumb or too evil or too corrupt to get on board. But we're also focused on being right, by which I mean both righteous and correct, that we've lost sight of the outcomes that we're fighting for. In his perfect world, the Joyce would design a budget process based on outcomes, on how well a program performs. A performance-based budget, if there is such a thing, sort of implies that there's some magic algorithm out there that, you know, if only you can get the performance measures right, you'll figure out how much money somebody ought to get. And I think what I'm more supportive of is a, a notion that if we're considering spending money on, you know, a health program versus an education program, we ought to have evidence out there about how much healthier people are going to be if we spend the money on the health program versus how much more educated they're going to be if we spend it on the education program. Evidence. That's the operative word. But it's also one of the reasons why we can't really have a system like this. Analysts can do a pretty good job of making predictions when they're dealing with predictable variables and clear ways of determining success. But when you're trying to figure out whether more low-income kids graduated with higher grades because of a government program, you're going to run into some trouble. There are just too many moving parts that go into the education of a child or into excursions in our healthcare system to predict with any accuracy how much farther a dollar will go in one program than the other. Joyce says that even though a purely outcomes-based budget isn't on the horizon, even just a diversion from the current way of thinking about the budget would go a long way. The alternative to what we might call performance-based budget is an input-based budget where the only question you're asking is, how much more money are we spending on this program this year than we spent last year or next year than we spent this year without asking, what are we buying for what we're spending? And I, and I think what I'm advocating is that we ought to be asking the question, what are we actually going to buy for this additional expenditure in terms of things that people actually care about, which is you know, these outcomes, health outcomes, education outcomes, you know, et cetera. I care about outcomes. I care about living in a country whose leaders rely on objective information to justify their decisions. I care about my tax dollars going to where they can do the most good. I care about being able to carry on a conversation with someone I disagree with because at least we can agree on the basic premise of our shared reality. I care about outcomes, and you should too. Because at the end of the day, everywhere on the political spectrum, we all want the same thing, to be proud of our country. And that's our show. Check out the show notes for some links to readings about the budget, the full C-SPAN coverage of those markup sessions, the CBO report archive, and more. Big thank you to Philip Joyce at the University of Maryland for the clarifying and illuminating interview. And thanks to you, listeners, for taking the time out to listen. If you like the show, subscribe to us on your podcast app. Leave us a review. If you got value from this episode, if you learned anything from this episode, if you care about outcomes and you want your friends to care too, tell your friends about it. It's the best way you can help us grow this show's audience, which will help me book more guests for the show and keep you enlightened on what's going on in the country at the policy level. It 
also lets me know that the hours I spent putting clips together, scripting, recording, and editing were worth it. I mean, I had to watch all three of those hours of that markup hearing. The least you can do is give me a signal boost. Thanks again for listening, and hold tight for our next episode. Should be in the coming weeks. It'll be about immigration. See you later. Thank you.